Hi, welcome to What You're Reading, Dude. It's Lisa, Jamie, Lauren. This is our time to catch up and share what we've been reading and inspired by, hoping to stir some deeper conversations. No one person has time to read every book or listen to everything, but we figured this is a good time to trade ideas, expand our horizons, and maybe inspire you as well. Just a reminder, this is for us, this is for fun, and we are not experts. Let's get into it. Hello, welcome. Hello, everybody. Oh, gosh. Hi. Welcome to our show. <laughs> We're out of it. <laughs> Don't know why. <laughs> Don't know why. Uh, also, I went to Ikea yesterday and I left at five and I got back at ten. So, yeah, it was a long excursion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love Ikea so much. I'm really happy I didn't go with you all. Like, like the first two rooms, I was like, I'm already overstimulated. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> what do I need? <laughs> I know. I started to make a list because I was going to go with you all. I was writing like pillows, curtains, and I'm like, girl, you have no game plan. Like (laughs) you are going to buy so much stuff. Or you're going to get really overwhelmed and leave with, like, potholders. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had to call that's it. That's what Posters, to me. Which is what well. I got. Still useful, though. And a frother, which is really fun. <laughs> oh, my God. They're so great. Yeah, yeah we can have used cool one. coffee drinks. It was $2. Really? We can yeah. each have one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness sake. It's the heat of summer. Um, We're ready for Friday. It's warm warm in here. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's probably contributing to things. (laughs) Yeah. I guess I can kick us off. (laughs) All right. Hype, hype, hype. Okay. This is Lauren speaking. (laughs) (laughs) She is here. Do I still need to (laughs) introduce myself? That's a good idea. (laughs) Every once in a while. Okay. I read Girl in the Dark by Anna Lindsay, which is a pseudonym I just learned. It's a memoir, so it's a true story. It's about a girl who starts developing a skin irritation to light and so has to spend almost a decade in a dark room. So the story starts out with her kind of working. She had like a normal civil job in the city. She's also from London, so she's working for the city of London, I think. And, like, at first it's just her face is reacting to the light from the computer monitor. The way she described it, it, like, hurt really bad, but she kept a fan on her face and, like, could kind of manage it. But it made her face turn red. (laughs) And then at some point it got so bad, like, she could hardly do her job, that she went to a dermatologist and they prescribed her, I think steroid creams although i don't exactly remember she started using whatever the dermatologist prescribed and her face started feeling better and then it spread to the rest of her body oh my god except it like wasn't really affecting her face anymore it was just affecting her body and it was no longer just the light from the computer screen it was all light including daylight bulbs yeah. And I think it progressively got worse. So she was like dating a guy. So she oh. asked him if she could move in with him. And she was like, I understand if you want to say no, but I would really appreciate moving in with you. Because <laughs> she could like no longer do anything for herself. Her boyfriend slash husband is a freaking saint. He like said oh yes to her moving in. They ended up getting married like a couple years in. Oh. She's like completely dependent on him. 
through the course of the book it like gets better and worse and the timeline is super interesting because it's a memoir she kind of jumps back and forth it's not like a straight linear timeline and at the end she kind of explains why she did that but it's because if it was a straight timeline she said that the like story was not super interesting and there are lots of like days in between (laughs) where like not Mm -hmm. a lot happened so she said it was more interesting to like kind of write the books like little almost journal entries or little snippets the whole thing with time is super interesting because the way she writes like her perception of time living in a dark room I guess I didn't say this but it got so progressively worse that she had to live in a dark room she had to seal all of the windows even the crack on the door like put like thick blankets over the windows and then aluminum foil over that it was like insane so her perception of time got really off as you can probably imagine and like that's kind of apparent in the book the way it jumps around and there's a part where she talks about how her brain was really kind of degrading there for a little bit because she wasn't making any new memories. And the only thing she could do was kind of remember old memories. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's, like, not super healthy. No. But she consumed a ton of audiobooks. What um, else can you do? Well, at the end of the book, because the timeline is super wonky, I realized that it was over the course of, like, eight years that she wrote this. Oh As you're reading it, it seems like it's maybe the course of a year or something there's like not a real great sense of time Uh which is super trippy but she writes about a couple different games that she plays with herself in the dark like word games in her mind or like if someone comes over to hang out with her like word games she can play with other people it's just so mind-boggling to me i'm guessing like she can't even go out at like night or anything can she so she does end up at some point and again the timeline's all weird so I don't even really know when this was but she like starts kind of testing light levels Mm -hmm. and sometimes she can like go down to the kitchen where the lights like not is well blocked off but still like no lights on Mm -hmm. but she can have like dinner down there with her husband but she ends up using her husband is a photographer and has like a light meter and so she starts to measure like how much light she can withstand and then she plots like a graph which is in the back of the book it's very interesting to see but at some point like she does get better and then it gets worse and kind of back and forth but she can go out on walks at night and then eventually kind of at dusk she starts to get upset because she can like walk around her neighborhood but she hasn't been anywhere further than walking distance from her house in years so her husband I think builds she calls it a puppy cage but builds like this box contraption that they can put in a car so she's like in complete darkness in the car and (laughs) can walk somewhere else that she hasn't been (laughs) it's just like I don't wow (laughs) yeah but parts of it reminded me of the book that Jamie brought where the girls like slept for a yeah. year oh yeah i mean very different situations and that one was fiction but like escaping quote-unquote normal life and then i was wondering like what would this look like in covid times when we all were kind of doing this to an extent but this is like a way crazier this version like of seven thousand times but i feel like you yeah. can relate to it after mm. going through the year and a half we have yeah. like hearing about this which is so obviously worse than what i personally went through mm-hmm. i'm just like damn i cannot imagine the amount of isolation i mean oh it sounds God. almost like she was imprisoned in a way and so having to play mind games 
games with yourself like the only time I've heard something like that was back on like the TV show Scandal where this one character would be like trapped in this basically pit with no yeah the box with like no light and so I think he just kept repeating the date to himself or how many days it had been or something just to keep track of time and not let him go insane. Yeah. And it sounds like she had it's to like do similar crazy. things. Yeah. How yeah. we don't realize how tied we are to knowing what day it is to like the sun coming up yeah. every day and like witnessing that. Well, and how much we rely on the things around us to maintain our sanity. Yeah. Like Yeah. So the end of the book was super funky because, and she writes about this in kind of the the author afterward, but like she is not cared at the end. She's still just kind of taking it day by day and can kind of incrementally do more or less. But she writes, she's like, I wanted to end this memoir like with some sort of solution. She wrote it Mm -hmm. over the course of eight years. She like just kept hoping that there was something Something was going to happen and they were going to figure out what was wrong with her. And that never happened. But I ended up looking up her as an author to figure out where she lived in England because I was just curious. Mm-hmm. And I realized that it was a pseudonym. She wow. didn't want like her name out there, like what town she yeah, lived in sure. out there. Yeah. It was wow. just more like she wanted to write it, I think, for the science of it or like for a doctor to maybe encounter it yeah like get your story out there yeah but not like look at me this is a crazy story anyway i was reading in this new yorker article i think it was new yorker i'll find it this reporter like wanted to follow up with her like the book she finished it in 2014 so she's like has there been any improvement like what has happened she said that one of her friends was studying like an antihistamine diet and mind you she tried like everything at this point yeah Diet changes, meditation, lotions, exactly, Mm -hmm. steroids, like everything. I think she ended up going, like trying kind of a low histamine diet and that seemed to help from Hmm. what I could tell from the article, but not, I mean, nothing to like. Not to cure. It's not, yeah. yeah. It just maybe has made her a, a tad less sensitive. Yeah. It also made me, like a lot of the doctors she encountered in the memoir, she was saying that like they could only help her if she came into their office and she's like I can't come into the office (laughs) Mm. like one of the notes was like she's like I'm sorry like I'm too sick I can't I think this was more at the beginning of her journey and they wrote a note back and they were like well if you end up feeling better like we'd love to see you or something work with (laughs) you and she's like if I'm feeling better then I'm not gonna need to come to see you like that's the whole point and it just made me think more about kind of the medical field and it's like yeah these kind of like exactly inaccessibility and these like more like invisible illnesses almost like mental health but but also other illnesses that aren't like physically visible a lot of doctors I think kind of were like not really sure this was even real it makes me sad for like there's a whole host of people she ended up finding like other people she could kind of connect with online like through she hired like a an older woman to like do computer work for her. I was gonna say how did she use it she dictated some and like had like a woman like help her do computer stuff that she could dictate to she ended up finding some like friends in not maybe similar circumstances but in like equally overlooked circumstances and there's a whole community out there that like feels so overlooked by the medical community for sure and and, like chronic illnesses too there's so many illnesses and things that 
affect people that you don't see by the naked eye. And I yeah. feel like so many of us tend to default by assessing people by what we can see. And so, so if you true. can't see it, you just assume someone is able-bodied, but you don't know what someone's dealing no, with. No, you don't. It's also hard for the person dealing with that to have to explain that they have something all the time in order yeah. to be understood. That <laughs> irks me so much. It does. Like, I understand we're not in a system in the U.S. where, well, I don't know that many people are making house visits, you know, but she literally could not leave and... I don't know. It, it just blows my mind that like people in the medical community wouldn't be intrigued enough yeah, to go right. check it out. Like, wouldn't, you know, exactly. yeah. I mean, house visits used to be a thing way back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Now I feel like it's just nurses that maybe if you're like ultra wealthy, maybe I don't know. Yeah, that, probably that's that not too. in my echelon of services available. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about how would that be different in COVID times now with doctors with being able to visits. do not that she could do like a video, right? but, but she a could phone call. more doctors are yeah, open to phone call visits. Or she I could even know. have the computer person. Like, yeah. They can still like do a video visit without just her not being on video, you know? Totally. This is just so intriguing, though, because my mind started to go into problem solving mode, you know, of definitely. Like, oh, yeah. could like certain clothing of a certain like should she have worn like the super mm -hmm. opaque hazmat suit with like dark color <laughs> and like obviously i don't know all the parameters well, i was thinking of colors too i'm like okay is there like a certain wavelength oh, of light like a dark room oh like yeah kind that of reminds me yeah she she like wore so many layers I'm of clothes sure. even yeah. in her dark room she had to wear like three layers of clothes yeah. like i think the first maybe the first couple pages is like an image of her like blacking out her room like you don't realize how easy it is for light to get in until you have to like actually keep it from getting in yeah like even if you think your normal like shirt is pretty opaque it is oh, very not opaque <laughs> on the light wave thing at some point in her neighborhood they were gonna upgrade the street lights and you know how like the older street lights are more of a yellow yeah. they're mm -hmm. halogen mm -hmm. yeah they were gonna upgrade them to a bluer LED? spectrum maybe, maybe? Okay. okay they were supposed to like more mimic daylight yeah and so yeah. they add more blue light into it but she was like, this can't, like, I won't be able to leave my house at all if you change right. the, the nighttime streetlights to this blue. So blue light affects her bad. way worse. Okay. And so she starts petitioning. She doesn't, I mean, obviously she doesn't have a job. She can't hold a job. So her, like, job becomes, like, petitioning these streetlights. Wow. And even the city officials are like, we don't know about that. Like, sorry about ya. And she's like, this is a medical condition. She, like, contacts everyone in the city. <laughs> like managers are leaving so she's like transferred to other people and she's like we need to stop these street lights and then just different avenues that you don't think about and like people's unwillingness to like work with yeah. again like unseen medical conditions or i think about mental health issues or something like autism where it's like disabilities disabilities so in general yeah. yeah and there's just such an unwillingness to accommodate or like think about how something as simple as a street light is affecting Other someone's people. life mm -hmm. and i know like i can be guilty of that too like in a design field it's like well we're just gonna do it this way because this is the way it's always been 
and it works for 95% of people. But, but does like, it? But does yeah, it? and it's and also 5% of people is a lot of people. And if it's not working right. for them, then... Also, it's even an assumption that something that you're proposing will work for the majority of people if you don't even have the data, particularly if you're from that predominant group that's yeah. defining yeah. what the norm is. Ah! Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this book was very interesting in many ways. And I told both of you when I started reading yeah. it, I like... It was kind of hard for me to get into. Mm -hmm. The story was interesting enough for me to kind of stick with it because I wanted to see what what happened. What happened. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I don't know if I necessarily recommend people read it, but it was well, interesting. I'm fascinated what? now. And her husband is a saint. A freaking saint. What was hard for you with this book? I don't know if it was just maybe her writing was not super captivating to me or okay. I don't know sometimes it's just like the topic's interesting but the writing's hard for me to yeah to attach to or something okay it depends on the book but I kind of set like a hundred page rule and that gives me enough time to like get into it and figure out if it's something I want to continue with and like the first 50 pages were kind of slow for me and then by a hundred I was like I like I this I'll yes. keep going yeah, yeah this is interesting so a cool rule of thumb very generous <laughs> but yeah about this husband oh my god oh, yeah freaking saint. saint would go to work and come back and like spend hours with her in the dark because she had been alone all day right. and and so accommodating i mean to be having meals in the dark to be just like i mean this is years like, in and taken over his years. house yeah, yeah. sure Kudos. he loved her but like yeah this is a complete lifestyle change and to like she talks about this a little bit but like yeah. go to work events and his wife can never come or right. like who is this mystery wife that you have right. that can never leave the house like, we just find met. so many ways oh to judge God. other people like yes. it's so baffling it's so to true me. you know That's it's so like, true okay so she doesn't show up to the work events fine that's his life if he's <laughs> fine that's all you need right? to worry about <laughs> yeah he seems like a really great guy Love. it's a very interesting story wow. i enjoy memoirs because i like dropping into people's lives that are totally unlike my own that are real stories very I mean, different life. there are such fascinating stories out there like the one you've just shared and so sometimes when you get into fiction you're like yeah okay whatever but like this person in real life went through this thing <laughs> and i'm learning so much from reading about their journey <laughs> yeah i think that was all i had cool cool beans man interesting <laughs> definitely it's a book that i picked up at goodwill like many years ago yes goodwill <laughs> because like the cover looked interesting or something mm. you know and Those when it's covers. only a couple dollars yeah. you can take a chance on a yeah. book but it sat on my bookshelf for a long time and i'm individually trying to do the book bingo and one of the things as you may know is on your shelf so here we go well cool and a very different change yeah. of day yeah 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 this week i wanted to talk about in the heights it was a broadway musical i believe written by lin-manuel miranda but then was adapted for the movie, like big cinema screen. I think the release was delayed due to COVID, but it was on HBO Max a couple weeks ago and I watched it and I realized I hadn't talked about it yet. And just like listening to the trailer again got me all jazzed. So here we are. Oh yeah, <laughs> so excited. I haven't watched it yet. So oh, I know I'm really mad at myself. I missed the HBO. I like saw it on HBO Max and like met, was like, oh, I yeah. need to watch it before that day. And then yeah. the is it still in theaters? Oh, that I don't know. I was guessing the time it was on, let's say HBO Max would like 
a while with that. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I don't know how movie theaters work. So some have things on longer than others. But when it comes back around and it's back on the streaming platforms, I highly recommend it. Now, I will disclaimer, it is a musical. And I would definitely put myself, I do enjoy musicals. I'm not like a diehard. Yeah, I'm not a fanatic per se. But, you know. Got some musical I blood. Can get down. I, yeah. 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 I can get down with a musical. And I loved it for so many reasons. And so I'll just give a quick synopsis and then jump into like the meat. But basically, the premise of the musical is it's centered in Washington Heights, which is a neighborhood within New York City. I don't know if it's like the farthest north or if it's like one of the farthest north neighborhoods like in Manhattan before you're kind of out. But it has a strong Afro-Latina community and so the main character is a bodega owner whose parents and well he is from the Dominican Republic and his parents when he was a child started a bodega they passed away and then passed on the bodega to him and you basically enter the storyline with him having this dream of going back to the Dominican Republic because he hasn't been since his parents passed away and in his mind it's so romanticized and just everything seems better there like the problems seem to go away and so he has this dream of being there meanwhile he is running this bodega that's like the center of the community like everybody's coming in and out yeah and so the musical is about him but there are other storylines going on too so I, I would say one of the main characters is the neighborhood is is the community Washington Heights which I absolutely loved and they hint at it in certain points too like one character continually says like let me just listen to my block you know like let me just listen to the music that is this neighborhood Mm. and that is one thing that I just really loved about this musical is it is a love letter to that neighborhood but to me it really just hit on the magic of city life and just the feelings you get in a bustling neighborhood and Mm -hmm. like or even whatever community like strikes you even if you're in the suburbs and you have an active street just all the different people walking around different shop owners different just the noises that you hear all the rhythm of daily life and you're integrated in it but you know you're also an observer of it as well it's loved it for that but basically the musical goes on this journey of Usnavi the bodega owner one of the main characters but then also you know brings in his like abuela brings in some friends uh from the neighborhood who have different storylines one character is just coming back from college i think she was at stanford and is feeling kind of overwhelmed by being so on her own over in this area Mm -hmm. you know and then you have other like shop owners and salon owners that and and I think like the the woman he Usnavi is like interested in, like they're all trying to find their ticket kind of out of there. Like I think the tagline is like life is hard, prices are going up, but we keep scraping by. Like it's just life is difficult. We're kind of like the shadow of New York. Like they go through a blackout during the musical at one point, hmm. which was just to preserve power for other parts of the city, yeah, you know. Wait, really? Oh, yeah, okay. true. And and they like and wow. you're actively going through gentrification too. So there's Yeah. You know, there are all these like feelings of the weight of struggle and getting pushed out of your community, but also like having that really strong tie to your community, but also seeing safer financial life could be for you outside of it, Mm -hmm. you know, or maybe your dreams, whatever you think they are, are leaving this. And I think 
so much of the musical is about seeing what's right in front of you and really analyzing what a dream is. Uh, mm-hmm. That I, That's what I got out of it. Um, yeah, it was beautifully done. Oh, my God. I, I just loved everything about it. I even loved, like, in terms of cinematography, there were some cool elements that they implemented. So they used reflection in a very interesting way. There are times when someone will be singing, especially Usnavi, will be singing looking out of his bodega window and you see his face but then you just see the reflection of the people on the street Uh, dancing back at him yeah you know i almost feel like i need to watch it again to just like read through some of the layers here you know it it was definitely a contemporary musical like the way the musical numbers are is it's plain dialogue text I mean it's beautifully written and it's very poetic but it's it felt very contemporary it felt Mm -hmm. current it didn't feel like oh we're gonna try to be like damn Yankees you know um yeah and then the props are just like normal things you would see like they they have a number at um a public pool and so they're just using like pool floaties and pool noodles and Mm -hmm. I'm like I love this because it was no less glamorous but it was totally real other than the fact that like you know a big group of people aren't gonna be breaking (laughs) Breaking out out a song song. (laughs) yeah yeah it was really beautiful um and even Lin-Manuel Miranda he's kind of like the shaved ice Piraguero she drives around like a little cart with like shaved ice and like different drinks and stuff and it's just kind of in and out of the scenes you know just being Mm. reminiscent of street vendors that you see like I'm guessing in Washington Heights but also in so many different areas of Latin America too Mm -hmm. um, that are really staples of the communities and are just kind of in and out and they're kind of a chorus piece when you look at a musical but also a character in themselves but Uh I, I thought it was really beautiful oh and they have this one line they keep bringing up like patience and faith, like patience fay. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't know, it was so like, I don't know, maybe it was just really good natured, but I was, it was singing to me. I was just <laughs> like, yeah, patience and faith, you know. But that was really cool. I, I know it did get criticism for not representing the Afro Latina culture that is more predominant in the neighborhood. Like the casting, it was getting criticism for not being as um, representative of the community. And so- That's kind of what I heard too. Yeah, especially like with the lead characters. And some people were kind of maybe calling it out for some colorism. And were they, sorry, I don't, it's been a very long time since I've seen the trailer. Were most of the main characters just like Latino or white? Uh, used to mean not. Yeah, I would say Wait. like the majority. I would say we're in the Latinx community. There were other people like, but it. Uh, but I think the thing is, those who represented different African mm-hmm. communities or the Afro Latina community, right? I would say the majority of the leads there were cast like it was more light skinned characters and the oh, I d- see. dark skinned people. That's kind of like, what community I heard. That is yeah. more predominant. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And, you know, it, like, Lin-Manuel Miranda, like, addresses it and is just, like, he took the criticism really well and took it in and, you know, was absorbing that while also just being really proud of the production that they made. Mm-hmm. And sure. I think he mentioned in his kind of apology statement, basically, like, I was so focused on the representation of the communities that I have been waiting to see, you yeah. know, personally. And so, like, he can relate to how people feel like they're still not being seen even when the movie is about their Their neighborhood and so I think he just like really took that to heart definitely you know noted good to hear yeah Mm -hmm. good to hear that he was receptive of the criticism 
hundred percent I think he gets it like you know definitely yeah and as we see like as people start making hopefully more inclusive things they are gonna not get it right every time and learn from their mistakes and be better next time that's all we can hope for I guess (laughs) yeah I know this is like tangential I have been thinking like a decent amount about cancel culture as I know what the enters our minds so many times and and I do think about us reaching a different chapter in cancel culture where we're, we're focusing on exactly what you're talking about of like working in the accountability and like having grace for people not in a way where like you can keep making tone deaf statements over and over again but it's like people right. grow and and as much as we try to be as inclusive as we can like we are humans that have blind spots you know and so mm-hmm. definitely um, yeah it's difficult because like I you know I don't want to say that with the premise of like oh we should just like forgive everybody for every no like, no, no definitely you know? yeah hold people accountable for yeah. sure and but we're also human so right you know <laughs> yeah and from a loving space point out like where maybe it wasn't it tried it didn't reach the mark that's this time yeah but, but there's so many good things about the musical in my eyes yeah. and it's yeah. not to minimize the criticism I hold that equal you know I mean that brings up a much larger argument in that I've been seeing stuff about cancel culture and like just because a person or a thing isn't perfect or has done bad things doesn't mean you have to throw the whole thing out like you can in equal parts take the good and the bad yeah and for whatever reason the example that's coming to mind is like you know a lot of our founding forefathers were Mm -hmm. like slave owners which Mm -hmm. is horrific and we would denounce that all day long but that doesn't in equal hand like there's so much good that they have all they also did for the country yeah and it's like you can't just throw out everything i know because then so you don't difficult though. i know it's it's so, it is are, but yeah. you can't learn i don't think from stuff like that unless you if you just throw it all out then you're not gonna learn from it you know what I mean oh for sure for sure denying okay if we're going on this forefathers (laughs) I don't know why I came up like sorry in the height we can stick with forefathers no 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 we'll stick with forefathers no no I just meant like with with the example of Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. I am not there yet. Like after no. like learning things myself, like I have not been able to listen to his music. A song and I, like came on shuffle in my car the other day, and I was like, I don't know what to do right now. And I was just like, I can't. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, for another day. But but when anyway. it comes to like forefathers, you don't want to just ignore the reality of what was happening. Yeah, and I know people are like, oh well, you know, it was the times, and I. I get what they're trying to do there by, you know, but But it also downplays. Yeah, it totally minimizes and just dismisses the very valid things that people are bringing up. I mean, you know, look at it from the standpoint of somebody who is from a marginalized community that is like the people that you're holding above me as these role models that you're telling me I need to be worshiping the ground that they once stood on actively oppressed the people that I represent. Exactly. Yeah exactly that is hard to do you know it is so hard to do frankly I don't know that you should be asked to do that I do get that's difficult because we're still trying to 
maintain a unified country. It's hard to sometimes pull out the goodness that came from the ideals of democracy. When you look be. at like the people who wrote it and you're like, oh, but it things here are so problematic. It's it's difficult, yeah. you know. And you know. even still what they wrote was not <laughs> Yeah, like Where were yeah, the women? Where we were love the, the first morning? little part of it, but yeah. like if you read that original document, there was a lot of fucked up stuff in there. Mm. Definitely. So that's not something to be, you know, worshipped either. Yeah. <laughs> so a good point though about like I know it's so much fun to just be like throw it all out, like throw the thing away, you know. But I do get that like if we continue on a path where the second something doesn't sit well. Like, even when it's valid, we just, like, fully throw it away without bringing accountability to it, learning it, owning it for whatever it was, you Mm -hmm. know, and then moving forward with all of that still in mind. Like, if we're not going on that path, we're just kind of throwing things away to the point where we don't have anything. And I know that's a bit of an exaggeration, but accountability and kind of owning it for what it is. And not ignoring I think, history is fine. Yeah, it's just, it's hard for me personally. And I think maybe for humans in general, like we want to classify everything as good or bad. And if it's bad, we want to throw it out. Mm. Like we're just conditioned to the either or. And it is a spectrum. Yeah. And there are good parts and bad parts of varying mm-hmm. degrees to everything. <laughs> and like this musical was great in your opinion. And there were some bad parts or some criticism that came along with it. It yeah. doesn't mean it was a musical not worth watching. Right. right. Like, <laughs> like I would still highly recommend this. Right. Also yeah. knowing I am not like part of the community that is right. finding criticism with it. So I, I do exactly. see that. Yeah. And listening to people's voices who are a part of that community and are taking issue with it is so important. Yeah. yeah. And we can do those both at the same time. Totally. <laughs> uh, yes. All of that in mind. I loved it. I was bopping along. It's so energizing. I thought it was beautifully done, and I'm just going to keep repeating myself. But yeah, Yeah, go check it out whenever it comes back into the streaming hemisphere. No, I hope it's soon. It will come back around. If it just doesn't show up again, again. they're missing out. Was it a musical first, or did it go straight to movie? It was you a know? musical on Broadway okay, uh, for a I... while. Yeah, so I believe Lin-Manuel Miranda, like he wrote this musical. He was the main character for mm-hmm. a while and then, you know, departed from that once he stopped acting on Broadway for this musical and then cast it as someone younger. Like he basically felt like he had kind of aged out of the role. And he even just gave major kudos to the actor who played Usnavi because he just oh he was fantastic and it just felt like the role was made for him like it it felt very Mm -hmm. (laughs) non-fiction very memoir-esque with music (laughs) okay let's transition we don't have (laughs) to my name is jamie we're gonna take the most horrendous (laughs) turn Where are we going? After like happy musical. And then now I'm going to talk about the Munich Massacre. Hello. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, not to be very excited. Yeah. No, no, no. So basically, for those of you who live under a rock, the 2021. No, no, no. Oh, 2021. The 2021 Olympic Games. My bad. Summer Olympic Games happened this year. And I know you both 
watched I them. I we going. Actively yeah. watching them. Actively. Yeah, I mean, surprise. Right now. No. Um, <laughs> we are recording this a little earlier. But anyway, the Olympic <laughs> Games happened slash right now are happening. And some people might have caught it. But in the opening ceremonies, there was a moment where there was like an announcer over the thing. And they were like, let's take a moment of silence for those who have lost their lives from COVID, I think. And then they kind of mentioned like, and the Israeli national team of 1972. Yeah. And it was kind of like a moment of silence. And I was like, you know, my brain immediately goes to like, there was a plane crash maybe when they left or something. Right. I was yeah. like, wonder what happened. And the and it like, also wasn't recent. It was like, no. so it was even it was like more 40, baffling because you're 40. like, wait, what? The commentator on NBC comes over and was like, oh, wow, that was like such a profound moment. No one in an Olympic ceremony has ever recognized the Israeli team. But I know that the president of the Olympic Committee, committee, committee. was like, I guess, at that games or knew some of the team members. So he's been like working towards getting recognition for the Israeli team. And I was like, okay, what is going on? So then I Googled it and this story's. Oh, crazy. I was like, what did I was Google like, do? What did I do? <laughs> the Google search so was crazy. So I'm like, I love true crime. So I apologize if I get like excited about this. A very terrible and tragic event happened. And I'm going to retell it to you in Jamie's Little go. History Hour. Yay. And disclaimer, our joy and excitement is about learning yes. this thing that we had no yes. clue about. Had no idea. Yeah, definitely. Had not about never the contents heard of it. about any of it. And this. sometimes when... Horrific things happen. You have to take it with a grain of comic relief. Right. And I just take it with a grain of like, how the heck have I gone 27 years of my life without knowing or ever hearing about any of this? Right. And watching several Olympics and they just, no one ever mentions anything. And to be fair, I did not live in 1972, so it's different. But like, this was a very big, so anyway, basically... TLDR, the Munich massacre was a terrorist attack on the Israeli Olympic team members in the 1972 Olympics, orchestrated by Palestinian members of Black September. So we've talked in the past about the Israel-Palestine conflict. Mm -hmm. Not going to go into this this time. There's a lot of background as to why this happened. And I in no way am choosing sides. I'm just telling you history and I'm not obviously many people in Palestine do not agree with what happened here. Right. Right. You're just sharing facts. I'm just sharing facts of history. Okay. Yes. So the Munich games were in Germany. Surprise. In 1972. And it was a big deal because it was the first time the Olympics let (gasps) Germany host an Olympic games games since Adolf Hitler's 1936 Olympic games. So So they were using it as, and it's 72. It was during the Cold War and they were letting West Germany host the Olympics. So it was kind of a big deal. Everything's crazy. So Germany is obviously trying to like West Germany, I should say. Anytime I say Germany, I'm talking about West Germany. East Germany had nothing to do with this story. West Germany is trying to like put their best foot forward and be like, look at us. Like, we are not racist, anti-Semites anymore. The Nazis are no more. Mm-hmm. We are a wonderful, lovely, hippie yeah. Yeah. The Olympics before, four years beforehand, was in Mexico City. 
And there was this also kind of looming threat at this new Olympics because in the 1968 Mexico City Olympics, 10 days before the game started, the Mexican City government murdered hundreds of students at the Taliclo Plaza in Mexico City. So the government murdered hundreds of students right before the Olympics. And then throughout the Olympics, Mexican armed guards were everywhere in like the Olympic City, Mm -hmm. heavily armed. And it kind of brought a really like obviously negative light to the games and put like a really negative atmosphere. So Germany was like, we can't do this. We need to put our best foot forward. Mm -hmm. So they decided... They're going to spend less than $2 million on security, no armed personnel, and all of their security forces are going to be inconspicuous and hidden because they, you know, wanted to take the very opposite view of what happened in the Mexican games. A different image. Exactly. And they decided to name the ceremonies Diheteran Spiel, the Cheerful Games. Mm. So they were very much trying to be happy. Then the Olympic Games went on for a full week and everything was fine. Mm -hmm. But on September 5th, 1972, at 4.30 a.m., Palestinian militants affiliated with Black September with assistance, tactical assistance from West German neo-Nazis, scaled a fence in the Olympic Village, disguised as athletes, and they had stolen keys to all of the quarters. So they walked straight into the quarters of the Israeli Olympic team. And it kind of, from what I could tell, is set up as like three different apartments. So they went into the first apartment and they were immediately confronted by Josef Gutenfreund, Mm -hmm. who was a wrestling referee, and Moshe Winterberg, who was a wrestling coach. So they were staying in apartment number one. The attackers forced... Weinberg at gunpoint to lead them into the rooms of all Israeli coaches and athletes. And while he was leading them, I'm sure there was like a scuffle and Weinberg ended up being shot. But he, instead of going to apartment two, he skipped over and went to apartment three. And there was some debate about like, okay, why did he take them to apartment three? People think it's because the people in apartment three were the wrestlers and the weightlifters. So Weinberg thought, like, oh, maybe, like, they had a really hard time taking down the wrestling coach and wrestling referee. So maybe a group of wrestlers could take these guys down. Mm. But they're thinking also maybe the people in room two were the Olympic shooters, sharpshooters, you know? Yeah. Either way, Mm -hmm. the Palestinians (laughs) went throughout the apartment complex and got, there were 11 people from the Israeli Olympic team. And got them all out of their rooms. So one person that I could find escaped. And that's a Shal Ladini, who was a race walker. And he only survived because he escaped apartment two because they like heard what was going on. Mm. So anyway, once they got to apartment three, everyone was held hostage. They took all the hostages back from apartment one. At this point, a wrestler named Gad Sabari broke away from the group and ran down the stairs towards a parking garage. And Weinberg took advantage of all the chaos and tried to disarm the Palestinian terrorists and like literally had control of a gun, but then someone else shot and killed him. Mm. 
someone else, a Yosef Romano, who was a weightlifter, almost disarmed one of the terrorists. But unfortunately, he was killed. And they actually, the terrorists left his mutilated body in apartment as like a warning to the police officers. So at this point, two men are dead in the village. Mm -hmm. At some point during this, obviously like the security or the Olympic committee became aware of what was happening. Mm -hmm. And this was 4.30 in the morning. So they were gearing up for the next day of games. And the chairman of the International Olympic Committee insisted that games still continue that day. Didn't stop anything. Mm. Just like... Well, games are still going to keep going. Oh, my God. So what the hell? So basically the reason the Palestinians were taking everyone hostage is because they wanted 200 Palestinians held in Israeli prisons to be released. And then the release of Andres Bader and Ulrike Meinhof of the Red Army faction. Don't know what that is. But basically wanted a bunch of prisoners released and then wanted an airplane to fly them safely to the Mideast. Well. So they're in negotiations and the West German police are like working on negotiating with these terrorists. But, you know, on the side, they're hatching a plan to overtake the terrorists, you know, typical stuff. They didn't know that they were on national TV at the time. The Palestinians? No, the West Germans who were planning to, you know, obviously cross the Palestinian terrorists. We're on national TV being filmed and could be heard saying how they were going to double cross the terrorists. And that um, broadcast was throughout the Olympic Village. So the Palestinians found out very quickly, obviously angered them. But eventually at 10 p.m. So at this point, it started at 430 in the morning. Games have continued on throughout this day. They're still held up in the Olympic Village. So It's now 10 p.m. Yeah, and so the Israeli athletes are just, like, not making their events. Mm -hmm. They're held hostage. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, okay. This is a full day. Games continue. People Mm -hmm. are just going about their lives. Full day. Was anyone thrown off by the fact that there was, like, a plan? Everything (laughs) I read just kind of ignored that. And it was like, all of a sudden, it's 10 p.m. And I'm like... Was no one freaked out all day? Right? Like, what if you were just, like, walking to an event and then you heard this clip and you're like... Right? Clearly they know something is going on. maybe? But, you know, maybe it's the time of the Cold War. Maybe I'm not going to make my swim. snitches get stitches. Like... I don't know. Keep it quiet. What that day was like. I don't want to know what that day was like for everyone else. Now it's 10 p.m. They finally reached the agreement They took nine hostages that were still alive and put them in buses and then were taking them to an airfield. First in Fieldbrook Air Base, which is about 15 miles west of where they were at in the Olympic Village. Obviously, the police are hiding there. Basically, the plan was they were going to this air base. There was two helicopters and an airplane and they were going to put like five of the hostages in one helicopter, four of the hostages in another helicopter Palestinian terrorists were going to go on the airplane and get out. And once they were out, the hostages could be freed. Everyone will be happy. That did not happen because basically it was just a giant shit show. The whole West German army, police force, everything. They hired 17 police officers and disguised them as Lufthansa crew to run the airplane. It was like a Boeing 727, if that means anything to you. And they were, when the 
terrorists got onto the plane. The police officers were going to subdue the terrorists. Every single one of those police officers abandoned their post. Oh, my god! Not a single one stayed on that airplane. They got wow. there. They got on the airplane and they left. So the terrorists show up. Two of them go to inspect the jetliner and see a completely empty airplane and are like, something's up. Where's the crew? Where are the pilots? Something's wrong. They shout to their comrades that something's wrong. West German police immediately start firing. Something to note about the West German police. So in some kind of agreement, post-war agreement, it was decided that armed forces, so the army, wasn't allowed to help the police. In Germany. In Germany. So the police were the only ones here. They weren't like the armed forces were trained. They had massive grade weapons. The police were not highly trained in something like this. They did not have they had snipers stationed who did not have training as snipers, had very small numbers, and they didn't have commute like radios to communicate each with each other. They also didn't have sniper rifles. They had assault rifles. So basically like they were not prepared at all. And the army could do nothing about it. So at this point, the West German police are firing at the terrorists. A gun battle ensues. Several terrorists are killed and one police officer is killed. There is a helicopter flight crew for the helicopters, for the Mm -hmm. hostages. They leave the helicopters. Sorry, I should have said before they go to inspect the plane, they put the Israeli athletes on the helicopters. And they were all bound together. So they couldn't leave. They were bound and tied. They were still just in the helicopters during the shooting. After like the initial like big gunfight, it kind of goes quiet Mm -hmm. into a stalemate. Um, At some point, the terrorists shoot out all the floodlights. So it's very dark at this air base. And it's just kind of sporadic gunfire. So at this point, total stalemate. No one knows what's going on. And also, the news shows up, which is both good and bad. And then at midnight, a member of the German government announced that all the hostages were freed, all the terrorists were killed, and everything was fine. Oh. Not 15 minutes later, a Palestinian terrorist tossed a hand grenade into one of the helicopters, killing all of the hostages on board. And then a second terrorist sprayed the interior of the other helicopter with bullets at close range, killing the other five hostages. Wow. So all 11 hostages had been killed. At this point, two armored cars show up that were supposed to take the hostages to safety. But they were supposed to show up three hours earlier, but, you know, we're stuck in traffic, so couldn't get through. They show up. The police, they didn't know the police were there. No one told them. The police didn't know. The armored cars. The armored cars coming to save the hostages did not know the police were there. What did they think? The police did not know that the armored cars were going to show up. So now two armored cars just show up. A terrorist goes and hides. But where he was going to hide was also where one of the helicopter pilots and a policeman were hiding. So the policeman shot and killed the terrorist. The noise and running of the terrorists made the people in the armored car nervous. And they're like, someone was shot. Let's just shoot. 
So the oh, armored no. cars opened fire, and I believe they killed both the pilot and the police sniper. Ugh. By 12.30, after 20 hours of insanity, the reign of terror was over. The 11 Israelis had been killed, only two escaped, and they managed to kill five terrorists and capture three of the terrorist gunmen. At this point, it is now the morning of the 6th, and on that day, the Olympic Committee decided maybe we shouldn't have games and held a one-day memorial for the Israelis. And at the service for the Israelis, the chairman decided to announce, don't worry, the games will continue tomorrow. So this guy is horrendous. So there's this idea that happens when there's a moment of crisis. There's an idea sometimes that like you need to put on a brave face. You need to be that strength. We need to continue on. Yeah. And I can, uh, you know, I'm I'm not, you know, justifying what the person who was making the call for this was. But I, I get like so much was riding for Germany on this Olympics to the point where they were like, Okay, there's a hostage situation. Like, nothing can stop this. It's over now. Yeah, we must continue. Yeah, and then when it got so bad that they they really had to make the call to stop for a day, they still wanted to follow it up with, like, but we'll be back tomorrow. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it feels so tone deaf hearing it. I can't imagine in the moment feeling like that may have been reassuring to hear for some people of, like, no matter what we are gonna march on like we're not gonna let Mm -hmm. this stop us like to show like it didn't have an impact on us but that is such a gruesome and devastating story that is nowhere near what i thought i mean might have gone down at the olympic in the olympic village this happened i mean i guess in my mind i had imagined that something had happened really like quiet in the night like people were kind of maybe yeah. killed in their room and that was it but like for them to go through this day of just like being a hostage like mm-hmm. that I mean that's such a traumatic incident in itself but then to have like it, it feels like in a movie where it's just like you were so close to possibly saving lives to just blow it on just, some PR stuff right. you know that then of course aggravated further aggravated the people you're trying to negotiate with like it's wow everything went very wrong it's not a single thing went right in this instance obviously after it happened the german government had like an inquiry into the tragedy to you know see what happened and the german government like came out and said oh this attack was completely unavoidable there was nothing we could have done it would have happened anyway, basically trying to like exonerate themselves from taking responsibility for what happened. However, in preparing for the Olympics, the Munich Olympic Committee hired a police psychologist named George Sieber to just like make a list of like the dozen worst case scenarios that he can think of, like <laughs> as a security guy to like, you know, try to like think of ways that basically like find to, like, the weak points. yeah 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 find the weak points see what they can do you know get ahead yeah. of anything mm-hmm. in situation 21 proposed an attack 
really scarily exactly like what happened. He proposed a scenario that a dozen Palestinian gunmen would scale the fence at an Olympic village at 5 a.m., seize Israeli hostages, kill two, and issue a demand for the release of prisoners from Israeli jails, and then have an aircraft to fly them to the Middle East. What? How did he nail that? Exactly. Like, what? What happened? Not exactly. But, like, so similar. Really, really, very close. Essentially what happened. 85% of what happened. I don't know how he could tell the future, but it came out to the public that this was a scenario that they were, like, preparing for in the games as a way to increase security. But the organizing committee came out and determined that preparing for threats like the exact one Sieber proposed would create a security environment that was not in keeping with their vision of the happy games. So they decided not to practice proper security protocols. And within hours of the attack on Olympic Village, Sieber was fired from his position and the administration had literally already begun working on concealing evidence of him being there and evidence of their mistakes of, you know, the armored cars being stuck in traffic and arriving late, the police not having the proper guns, not having radios, not having anything that could help them. So the German government immediately started covering everything up. And to make matters worse, it was not over. What happened had a rolling effect, basically. So less than two months afterwards, on October 29th of that year, members of Black September hijacked a Boeing 727 that was flying from Damascus in Syria to Frankfurt, Germany. They threatened to blow up the plane if their demands were not met. And their demands were release of the three gunmen from the Munich massacre from jail in Germany, where they were currently on trial for, you know, the horrendous acts they did. Mm -hmm. The German government immediately took the three prisoners and flew them to Zagreb in a private jet and then flew them to Libya where they were released and welcomed as heroes, which is quite the sentence. At no point did Germany say anything to Israel at no point saying that they were releasing these three men who did horrendous things to their team. There was an investigation years later. So apparently there's a film called one day in September and it was Hmm. created in 1999. It's a documentary and it won an Academy award, but this film was about the Munich Mm. massacre. And in the film, they discovered that the hijacked plane, I'm using air quotes, quote unquote, hijacked plane from Damascus actually was selected in advance by West German officials and Palestinian terrorists. The airliner was empty when it left Damascus and it had like a stopover in Beirut before going to Frankfurt. And when there was a stopover in Beirut, less than a dozen passengers, all men boarded. Basically, I don't understand them. I'm like, I think it's just to make it look like there were people on the plane. Basically, West Germany came up with this whole plot to secure a promise that the Palestinian terrorist underground groups 
wouldn't conduct any operations with West Germany anymore. And in exchange, they gave them these three terrorists mm-hmm. back. In response to that, Israel's prime minister at the time authorized what he called Operation Wrath of God, which was an assassination campaign against the Black September operatives that were released. So the three of them that were released. The program was suspended in 1973 within months of creating because the assassination squad mistakenly killed an innocent man in Norway and killed also several members of senior Palestinian leadership along the way. Last thing is one planner of the Munich attack, Abu Daoud, was arrested in France in 1977, and people were very excited they finally got one of these guys back. But West Germany's extradition request was denied, and he was flown to freedom in Algeria. Hmm. Oh, my God. That's it. That's the end of the story. Yeah, I don't even know. It's just, like, super depressing. What an insane, horrible event. Horrible. I should have said this at the beginning. I got all my information from Britannica. article about it the article Mm -hmm. link the article there's one positive step in the wake of (laughs) munich events and that is that germany created grenschultz group or it's a border protection group which apparently is now one of the most effective counterterrorism forces in the world wow so i guess that is the one good thing that came out of this Mm -hmm. but like holy shit crazy so crazy so many thoughts and it makes me wonder about yeah it coming up in this recent opening ceremony you know and i guess you mentioned the president of the Mm -hmm. olympic president or chairman or whatever it is the guy who runs the chairman like he was he at the games um what i read was that he was a contemporary of these athletes which i was like He's not Israeli, so I I don't think he was on the team or anything, but I think he was, like, an athlete athlete during these games or, like, knew some of them. And apparently he's been working for years to get it recognized. And people have always, like, refused to, like, recognize these events. And and I think it's because they don't want to, like, bring down the spirit of the games, but... Well, I'm sure Germany also doesn't want that shared. Or very much Palestine. Like, yeah. Yeah. Or it's Israel. sad because yeah, yeah, none of them. No, no matter. I mean, obviously, Israel Palestine is so deeply political, but like any terrorist, any death of any massacre is sad, oh, yeah. no matter what side oh. you're on, and and must be like remembered and memorialized. Like those people were killed, and that's yeah. tragic. It makes me think, too, about how difficult it is to try to de-escalate security once you've increased it. And so I, mm-hmm. I think about, like, Germany's decision to just have a really minimal security mm-hmm. presence at the games. Not to say that this, like, would have been avoided if there was more security. Like, we we don't right, know. Right, we don't and know this was anything. so long ago. Yeah. But I think about that even with, like, the Capitol in Washington, D.C., and yeah. thinking about, like, you know, we've just been kind of armoring up the boundaries of the White House for, for a number of years now. But, like, even the Capitol with, like, the insurrection in January, it's very hard to dial it back once there's that tension, especially when, like, Things haven't been resolved, and I know it's different because what happened in Mexico City was completely independent from what we know from what happened right. in Munich. 
but it just like it can be really hard to be like you know we're opening the doors we're just we trust people like it's yeah was definitely taken advantage of oh absolutely um, yeah which is really unfortunate in germany's hands like i feel you know for i mean everybody that was lost and involved in this and i also feel for germany in this situation just like having to navigate it and then also just like their kind of like communication with Palestine afterwards to try to just mitigate any future right? tension. I don't have an answer or anything on that, but yeah. it's, it's a thinker. It, it, mm-hmm. it is. It reminds me, I mean, I love the Olympic Games. I'm so pumped whenever they come around, but they like every year are just dripping in controversy. And yeah. mm-hmm. as bright and shiny as they are, there's always a backside. And this is a very extreme yeah extremely horrific event but it seems like in every time they come around there's something like this time it's like people in japan are protesting because they didn't want the games to happen because of covid which makes so much sense to me and it's Mm -hmm. it's just well and once again the russian team like instead of russia being able to show up as russia like with the doping scandal Mm -hmm. like they have had to create their own subsect i was listening to some podcasts this week where this person who has studied a lot of the olympics or been involved with them we'll link it in the show notes but he was like rio in 2016 was like just inches away from destruction constantly like they were so close at this just like imploding yeah that's what i remember of the rio olympics is all this scandal but yeah i mean part of me is like should i be participating and like watching this because it because there's (sighs) so much controversy that comes with it and i don't know i don't have the answer it's hard because i i really love the olympics for what they stand for Mm -hmm. and to be this unifying moment when the whole world can kind of come together in the spirit of like healthy competition and right. obviously and that teams like, and yeah and like you know that sounds all picturesque and it's you know not like that and there's all sorts of, like you said scandal and it's just not a perfect system it's difficult because I still thoroughly enjoy right. watching it and and want the best out of it I think yeah. that's yeah. the thing is like I'm still hoping for the ideal of the Olympics to be realized of at least what it means in my mind. I know like it hasn't always been that even in the history of the Olympics. So it's tough. It's tough. It is. I'm really happy you shared that. It's way more in depth and involved than I realize. I'm glad that they shared about it on the ceremonies. I think it's good. Yes. I mean, it's good for the Olympics to acknowledge the, the not past. so shiny, bright things that have right. happened. What do you know? We're tying but themes together. We're yeah. And I, yeah, I appreciate you digging deeper and not just letting it pass and eh, something else I don't know about. Mm-hmm. Whatever. <laughs> Moving on. Anyway, yeah. if you're still here, <laughs> hope you have a great rest yeah. of your day. Please leave us a review if you liked if you like listening to oh, us. Yeah. And go follow us on Instagram. We are gearing up some more yeah. social media fun stuff. And we want to see and you there. share with your friends. We love a share moment. Love a share. <laughs> share. Sharing. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> There's an episode that you really like. Share it with someone. We mm. would really appreciate that as we're yeah. gearing up and growing this. Oh, and let us know because we're playing around right now so we're here for feedback. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, well have a good week. Okay. <laughs> See ya. Thanks for listening. Links from today's episode can be found in the show notes on our website, whatchareadingdude.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have anything that piqued your interest or you want to share, email us at wrdpod at gmail.com. Maybe we'll feature you on the pod. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts and also on Instagram at wrdpod. Follow us and stay up to date on future episodes. Like, leave a review, tell a friend. You get the idea. Music for this podcast was created by Kalindo. Find him on Instagram at The Real Kalindo. Stay inspired and we'll see you next week.